listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Our readings for this feast day of all saints both deal with matters of life and death, though in quite different ways. From a passage close to the end of the book of Revelation, we heard that promise of a coming age in which God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. Death and all of the tears and grief and sorrow that accompanies it will not have the final word, either in our lives or in the life of the whole of creation, for creation itself is being made anew. And then we heard the story of the raising of Lazarus from the Gospel according to John, which stands as something of an enacted parable of the defeat of death. As Robert Ferrer Capon has it, Jesus never met a corpse that didn't sit up right then and there. But why all this talk of death, though, on this particular feast day? Well, it's because what All Saints Day really marks is what the Apostles' Creed calls the communion of saints. We believe in the communion of saints, which is to say that we believe that this thing called the body of Christ is not severed by dividing lines between life and death. That though we may no longer see those who have died, we live in a real and spiritual union with them as members of this one body. And that includes not only the big league stained glass uppercase S saints, whose lives and witness are well known, it also includes what you might call the ordinary saints, including those whose names have been long forgotten. And in the strange economy of the communion of saints, the uppercase and the lowercase shall sit down side by side to feast at the table together. Now, of course, as St. Paul uses the word saint, he simply means the members of the church. Most of the saints Paul writes of were still very much alive, though at least some had already died. And so he uses the term fallen asleep. Some have fallen asleep. But it's not as a way of denying death. Rather, it's a way of saying, again, death does not have the final word. It's not the end for them. The Greek word that we translate as saint is hagios, which means literally holy one. But anyone who has read Paul's epistles has got to know that most of those so-called saints he wrote to were anything but holy. I mean, their holiness only comes as an act of grace. On their own steam, the holy ones in places like Corinth could still make a pretty good mess of things. But it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not your own doing, but a gift of God, as he writes in the epistle to the Ephesians. And it is from the saints 
the ones named holy in spite of all their failings and foibles, that we have inherited this faith, this great and deep tradition. Now, that word tradition sometimes gets a bit of a bad rap, as in, you know, it's just a tradition. Truthfully, sometimes people and sometimes maybe more often churches do get trapped in their own traditions. There's an old joke told about Anglicans that when Anglican church does something for the first time, it's a radical innovation. When they do it for the second time, it becomes traditional, and they're stuck with it forever. Well, I'm more taken by the insight of the theologian Yaroslav Pelikan, who wrote that, quote, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. You see the difference, right? And so then Pelican quips, I suppose I should add, it is traditionalism that gives tradition such a bad name. And I think that's very true. It's a living faith that has been traditioned to us by the saints, both living and dead. So let me tell you a story of standing in the tradition and being part of the process of handing something on. It's been about 15 years now that I have begun my sermons the same way with that simple invocation. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Now, I first heard that sermon invocation in 2001 at a gathering of the General Synod of the Anglican Church of Canada, sort of our every three years, the big national gathering of representatives from across the whole church. Now, in and around 2001, the lawsuits related to the church's historic involvement in running the residential schools were swirling all around us. It actually looked like the Anglican Church of Canada was about to be sued out of existence. The beginning of that general synod, Archbishop Michael Pears, the primate of the Canadian Church, the senior bishop of the Canadian Church, said quite bluntly that this was in all likelihood the last time the general synod would ever meet. But rather than casting a pall over the proceedings, it actually was really liberating. I mean, if this was the last time the General Synod was going to meet, then we better get on with some things that actually mattered. Let's do the important things and make some important decisions and talk about things that had real weight and substance in the lives of people. In other words, we were kind of set free. This is kind of, it's kind of brilliant, strangely. So it was on one of those days when Archbishop Pierce stood to preach and he opened with the invocation, may only truth be spoken and only truth received. The words caught me in the most powerful of ways. I knew right then and there that from then on, whenever and wherever I preached, those would be my words of invocation. Well, this past summer, I received a letter from Michael Pierce, portions of which I want to read to you. It's dated August 10th, 
2015, and the letter begins, Dear Jamie, Yesterday in our parish church, Epiphany and St. Mark in Toronto, Andrew Coleman preached his first sermon. I was mildly startled at the beginning when he used an invocation I have almost always used. May only the truth be spoken here and only the truth received. I was surprised, as Andrew has never heard me preach. The days when I was invited to preach appear to have passed, though occasionally I am asked to preside. Now, just a bit of an aside, many of you will know that together with his wife, Rachel, Andrew was an active member here at St. Benedict's Table for several years. And that from here, they've gone to Toronto so that Andrew can pursue theological studies at Trinity College. And they've settled in this parish, Epiphany and St. Mark in Toronto, where Michael and Dorothy Pierce worship. So, continued. When Andrew and I were speaking together after the service, he told me that this invocation came from you. And that when he asked after the source, you said a primate, Michael Pierce. Let me tell you where the words came from. After my confirmation in 1948, I made my first communion. My parents, who had diligently sent me to Sunday school, not accompanied me, promised me that confirmation meant that I was accepting church-going as my responsibility and that they would never bother me again on the subject. Hooray! I quit. In 1953, so about five years later, two fellow students at the University of British Columbia invited me to St. James Church, a great Anglo-Catholic parish with a major ministry in the downtown east side of Vancouver. I never looked back. The parish sponsored a mission led by a young, bright priest from Toronto, Michael Creel, He began each address with those words, and I never forgot them. When Archbishop Howard Clark was elected primate in 1959, he hired Michael Creel to revivify Christian education for the Canadian Church. He did that, but those were the 60s, and the Church could not contain him. He became a professor at York University and is now, like me, an octogenarian honorary assistant priest at a Toronto parish. We so often think of time as a long line into which we step at our birth, but it contains some wonderful circles as well. Thank you for being part of this one. Yours, Michael Pierce. Well, two things. You might have noticed that the words Michael Pierce cited are ever so slightly different from the ones I use. He says, may only the truth be spoken here and only the truth received, as opposed to my somewhat more streamlined version. But that's the way that a living tradition works. There can be subtle shifts and variations. I use what I remembered. Yet at the core, in spite of the subtle shifts and variations, It remains solid. 
That's a living tradition passed down or circled round. Secondly, though, sometimes we just don't know the impact that our words or actions can have. How something so simple as a sermon invocation can place you in a long line that is at the same time what Michael calls a wonderful circle. And so it is from stumbling saint to stumbling saint to stumbling saint. Things good and true are passed along, sometimes almost in spite of ourselves. I am ever so grateful to be part of this ragtag, stumbling, grace-filled thing called the communion of saints, and ever so grateful for those who have gone before us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. been listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.